Hello, all listeners, and welcome to this episode of Hacker Talk. My name is Philip, and I will be your host during today's show. Today, I have the pleasure to introduce Sam Bent. Sam has a background as being a Dorknet vendor, an individual selling various substances on several Dorknet marketplaces. A Dorknet marketplace in this context is an online store similar to eBay, prioritizing its users' anonymity by utilizing protocols such as Tor or I2P. I'm really looking forward to hearing how Sam utilized operation security in his day-to-day life in a scenario where you don't know who you can trust and where everyone is acting under a pseudonym. Welcome to Hacker Talk, Sam Bent. How are you doing today, Sam? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on. So for all the listeners that have no idea of who you are and what your background is, take us down memory lane. Who are you? So, um, you know, my name's Sam. Um, I have a YouTube channel called Doing Fed Time. And on there, I primarily talk about the darknet. And my background in the darknet is fairly extensive. I was a darknet vendor. I was also a darknet admin. I primarily focused when I was a darknet admin on things like uh, dispute resolution or adjudication, but like a vendor and a buyer would have a disagreement and I would come in to solve that. Or doing public relations for them on sites like Reddit and things like that. Um, and I was also a administrator on Dread, which is one of the Darknet's largest forums. What was your first introduction to Tor? What sparked your interest for it? Uh, it's, so it's been a long journey. Um, I remember... When I first ran tour, I have no clue when that actually was. Um, but like I remember checking out, you know, Silk Road when it came up. Um, so that you know, can establish a timeline with that. It's been a while. Um, I remember <laughs> yeah. like looking at Bitcoin when it was worth a fraction of a penny. And uh, my buddy had taught me, uh, he showed me mining. Um, and we mined something like 300, 400 Bitcoin. And I was like, this is useless um and i just deleted the wallet <laughs> i was like Shit. this is stupid <laughs> so i deleted the wallet and walked away they had sites i mean then like later on you had sites that came to be like uh btc faucet where you could go to btc faucet and basically you know get 10 20 free bitcoin every day because it was you know it wasn't worth anything i mean the first bitcoin transaction ever was like twenty thousand bitcoin for two pizzas, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, it really wasn't wasn't a thing. So, it's just it, it's, that, it's been an uh, interesting journey. <laughs> have you read that Bitcoin talk, uh, Fred, about the guy, uh, the Bitcoin talk, Fred, about the guy uh, buying pizzas for uh, twenty thousand bitcoins? Uh, from so, from my understanding, that was the the first transaction um, of Bitcoin um, ever. Yeah, um, I mean, who who actually knows? You know, it could be, could be anything. Yeah, it, it's it's uh, they have like a public uh, sort of for interrupting. They have a public like they have a thread on Bitcoin talk about that incident or uh, that happened, and it's funny to see how it evolved during the years because mm-hmm. the first four years everyone is like, "This is awesome! This is the best thing for Bitcoin adoption." And then as the price goes over and over, you can see like. As newer the replies gets, the angrier and angrier more people are. <laughs> yeah, and then and then like, you you end up yeah, and you and you see a lot of people that were just like I mean I mean, for years, uh, years and years and years. I remember like 
after it's really started, you know, I think it was like $30 a coin. You know, that's when I realized, all right, yeah, this isn't just a, a joke. You know, it's not, it's not just some trendy thing or some nonsense. Then you start to analyze it and you start to understand, you know, the structure of it and where the inherent value is, is that everyone else says it's valuable. Like if, if you have two or more people that agree on the value of something, it kind of has this inherent value. So like I could take a regular piece of paper off my desk right now and say, you know, I Sam Ben, you know, give you $20,000 and I'll pay it on this day. And I sign it and date it and I give it to you. And, you know, now essentially that piece of paper is worth $20,000. I mean, you lose it and you can't take me to court to get that money. So, you know, we just, we just turn that, you know, that debt into something of value. We turn that piece of paper into something worth, 20 grand and i you know you kind of had that fruition of something that was you know didn't even really have a price tag on it being worth you know something going you know all the way up to like whatever it was 50 50 grand you know um and then it goes back down and people freak out i remember when it hit nineteen thousand, and it was like there for three days and people freaked out and then it dropped and they're like oh it's crashing it's crashing i'm like yeah but it's gonna go back up that's just that's the nature of it that's what it is you know it's always going to go back up and you know it's just a matter of how much time will there be before it goes back up because there's so many different people who you know they're they're they've been trapped by these different financial institutions for so long now that any semblance of freedom and it's like people like oh we have kyc and i have to identify with my face and like you really don't though if you're resourceful enough you can find you know places that have no kyc and and like, you know, from my understanding of KYC, when I was looking at like my my money laundering charges with KYC, you know, the the people who are mandated to do that, it's not me and you, right? Like if I'm going to sell you $500 in Bitcoin, like I'm not obligated to get your identity. Like private sales are legal, you know? Um, and that's like really like, you know, that's, that's a lot of, that still gives us a lot of freedom. So I think you still have people out there who are always going to want to operate on that level because we have an inherent, uh, inherent right to privacy. And, you know, even with, you know, all the social media and all the stuff that we have nowadays, it's something that if you want it, you can fight in the form of learning to be able to ascertain it, you know, nothing's free and, you know, fighting for that ability to have privacy, that's something you're going to have to invest some time into learning how to do in order to be able to do it. Absolutely. It's not easy. It's not <laughs> easy dealing with the uh, cryptocurrency. So how did you, you get introduced to uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and how did that go on to develop to more tour things? Yeah. So I started, uh, I started watching it uh, probably when it was about 200 bucks. And I think that was on Silk Road. Um, and like, I was, I was still watching Silk Road and I was like, man, this place is a scam. You know, <laughs> it's all a bunch of feds yeah. run this probably. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wasn't interested in selling drugs at the time. I was, I was in uh, information security, IT, stuff like that. Um, I had like my own little business where I would do like a lot of uh, residential security stuff. So like, you know, I, I really disliked the fact that I would have people in my community who would get price gouged on things by like computer stores or like, you know, you would have like the, the best buy team. Um, and like, they just, they rake people over the coals. Cause you know, people don't know how much work goes into swapping our Ram, which is, 
it's a joke. Um, <laughs> and like, you know, so they rake people over the call. Oh, it's going to be a couple of days to replace this Ram. Like, dude, it's going to be five minutes, you know, like take two screws out, stick it in. Like <laughs> what's the issue? Um, so like I created my, this company to be able to give people like affordable, reliable computer service where like they can have reasonably uh, reasonably priced services and i introduced stuff like uh remote desktop which is like with team viewer which is really nice because it saves me on gas save you know they can get that support instantly but it's it's one guy doing it you know so did my best but you know you're making 50 bucks at a time doing it by yourself trying to learn about accounting and learning how to you know manage your llc and all this other and it was just it was ended, you know ended up being too much um, all the forms and the legal paperwork yeah, and yeah. the invoices. So I, I, what really killed it, though, was I ended up moving. Um, so I moved from hmm. one place to another. But like when I moved, the neighborhood that I moved to, it was very nice. Um, it was in uh, it was in a town called East Burke here in Vermont. And um, it was gorgeous. Uh, it was like so anyone, you know, with Google Maps, it was, it was 3585 Darling Hill Road. And like if you look at that house, it's up on top of a mountain. And like you can see mountain ranges all around you. Like it's 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 absolutely gorgeous. But um I moved there. I was so amped to move in there and I got it for so like that whole house I ended up renting for eleven hundred bucks a month. So I was amped because wow. it's like a four or five bedroom. I was I was stoked about a, that. That's nice. Yeah, dude. we're talking like 2015. So um so it wasn't bad. So um I ended up moving there. I moved in and I just so being in like information technology, I think, you know, and being on the internet, you know, basically 24 seven. Right. Um, I think we get to the point where it's like, you know, only third world countries don't have the internet. So, but that, that was my misconception. That was my ignorance. So when I moved to this place, I realized there's no wired internet. I just assumed it would be there. Um, so mm -hmm. like when I called the, <laughs> when I called the cable company, they're like, nah, this is, we don't service that area. And I'm like, all right, what do I have to do to service the area? And they're like, oh, you got to get a petition signed by so many people on the street. And like, you know, it's a, like, again, it's a really affluent neighborhood. Like I got this moonshiner beard. I got a shaved head. You know, I'm like, I'm not walking up to these, you know, these houses with these people who multi-million dollar houses. So I was like, you know, they don't think I'm there to rob the place. So I was like, I asked you like a whatever. So I ended up, you know, trying to figure something else out. And that time that it took to do that, it killed my business. So, wow. you know, from there it was like, you know, what do I do now? And figuring that out along with like breaking up with the woman I was with, like I ended up breaking up with her we were together for 10 years, but I broke up with her oh, and, you know, getting ready to leave. It was like, I, I, when I left, I wanted to leave and I wanted to move into a house, but I didn't want to like go to a, a crappy town that was full of drug addicts because I didn't want, like I grew up in, in Southeast. So like, I didn't want my kids to be around that, you know, drug scene, you know, yeah, um, yeah. you know, see crackheads and, and dope fiends and all, all that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. Um, the needles. Um, yeah. Right. So I was like, you know, what can I do to make money quickly? And it's like, I totally irony isn't lost on me, you know? So I ended up going over and saying, you know, well, a natural conversion for a guy that's in it and security um, is not a natural conversion, but like, um, a pretty easy transition was going to be a darknet event. I already know about encryption. You know, I understand networks. I understand, you know, I understand all these things, you know, uh, randomizing Mac addresses, you know, like all these, all these kind of different concepts that are going to come into 
play in regards to OPSEC, forming those policies, forming those like information security policies, all those different things that come into play, being able to line those up like dominoes for someone who's dealt with security and, and you know, um, been a consultant and help people, you know, secure their own lands and then, you know, secure themselves out there on the internet, you already have a heads up. And like for someone who's, you know, studied, uh, you know, as I was running backtrack too, you know, <laughs> like, so like, you know, having, having been in, in that, you know, like owning boxes and VMs 10 years ago, you know, like, um, yeah. I found a uh, fun side thought on the backtrack. I found a backtrack VM that was created uh, 2011. Yep. And uh, I actually used that for uh, for verifying that I've been in IT security for long. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 that's crazy though. But like so like you know coming from that kind of background it was kind of a natural thing to adapt to you know the only addition was the drugs um but you know like i'd sold weed and stuff before you know powder coke stuff like that prior to getting into the security scene so it was kind of like a a mesh of these two jobs that i had previously they were just combined like i totally get the irony of like oh you sold drugs to get a better house so your kids didn't have to be around drug addicts like um and obviously com- you know that completely backfired on me but um yeah so the like the the going into that setting it all up was absolutely um insane because like it's not it's not even like the encryption stuff that or like you know the the technical stuff like did you randomize your mac when you hopped on to your neighbor's you know wi-fi to hop on to tour like not even that stuff so much because like that stuff you get to a point where it's just second nature but it's like all the kind of extra you know little things like you know did you make sure that before you went into you know the room where you're packaging your packages today that you sanitized it with bleach because 20% of, you know, dust is dead skin cells, which is DNA. Hmm. So that's a, that's an OPSEC problem for you. You know, like if you're a slob, don't be a dark net vendor. Learn how to clean first. You know, and that's like, aside from, you know, not obviously not having your prints on the inside of boxes, you know, like you have plausible deniability for the outside of them. Um, if you're grabbing a bunch of boxes from, you know, USPS, you can explain why your fingerprints are on the outside of them, but on the inside of them or like, you know, on the plastic, that's, that's, you know, you can't really justify that. So all that, all those kinds of, you know, little things, you know, they, they add up and you end up having just this ridiculous list of things in your head that you have to manage and micromanage in order to make sure that everything's set and, you know, trying to do all that. And like, you you know, still grow cannabis, answer customers questions, um, stay active on the forum so you can be relevant, you know, like all of those kind of things really, I mean, it's absolutely insane to try to balance all that and, you know, raise three children at the same time, trying to make sure like that, that, that our world is completely separate from them. Like, you know, they see me on, on the laptop, but that's, that's all they know, you know, mm-hmm. like dad works on computers, you know, like, and yeah. my DEF CON talk, that's what, you know, when 
the Department of Homeland Security investigated me, that's what they knew. They knew that I was in the computer business, but that's all they knew. Um, like if you go through that talk, you'll see there's one slide that's all white. And that's, you know, what it says at the top was, and that's, you know, kind of the difference you have between OPSEC and cover. Like with OPSEC, you don't employ deception. Whereas with cover, you know, you can absolutely employ whatever deception you want. Um, that was my deception because I already, I already owned a, a computer company. So mm-hmm. it's very, you know, it's easy to fake it because, you know, <laughs> you know, you know what to say, how to carry yourself and, and, and all that, you know, you're already there. So to say, yep. How, how did you, okay. So you decide like, okay, now I'm basically need to create good OPSEC and I need to figure out how to become anonymous on the internet. Like how, how was the start of it? Did you make like a giant checklist and just check things off? So um, um, what, what ended up happening uh, was the good thing about this was that, you know, the 10 years before, you know, before I decided to become a vendor, mm-hmm. for 10 years before that, I had studied, you know, information security, um, you know, operational security and all those, all those kind of things that, that go into it. Obviously I hadn't studied them in the context of being a dark net vendor, but um, you know, a vulnerability is a vulnerability is a vulnerability. Same with an exploit. So, you know, understanding that and being able to put yourself in the shoes of an attacker, it's kind of like when you leave your house and you accidentally leave your keys in your house. Now, prior to you doing that, you always thought like, Oh, I'm safe. All my stuff's safe. I'm good. You know, you, you never, you don't worry every day about someone breaking in and tying you up. Right. I mean, it's just not a, it's not a realistic thing to worry about a home invasion on a regular basis uh, or, or to worry about getting robbed on a regular basis, you know? And that's because like, you know, security is one of those essential things that we as human beings, along with food, shelter, you know, water, we need to survive. Um, So we feel safe in our homes and, you know, then we, we walk out of our homes and we leave our keys in our home and it's like, Oh, like, you know, the first thing I always think of is like, you know, shit, man, like, well, how am I going to get back in now? And then about two seconds goes by and, you know, I check the windows, I check, you know, I, I try to card my door and, you know, within mm-hmm. three minutes I've, you know, I've got access to my home and then I walk around after getting in and I make sure all the windows are locked, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, and all that set up. So like, you know, but my point is you have this feeling of security until it gets obliterated. And that could be you forgetting your keys in your house, or it could be like, you know, you grab the wrong torrent, like you're going to pirate that game and you grab that wrong torrent and you got owned. You know, <laughs> Yeah. Um, you, you downloaded the wrong file and now you have ransomware. <laughs> so like you just, you know, that's how it was. Uh, and like, you know, again, whether it's like, you know, you're grabbing wares and you, you grab the wrong thing, you know, some some douchebag put in, you know, a, a rat. Uh, now, now, now you get owned. Uh, you got to reformat and, you know, reset up and change, you know, all your creds for everything. But um, when that happens, you learn a lot. And if you don't learn a lot, you're just going to get kicked in the teeth again. Um, and it's kind of the same with any security, whether it's physical, you know, uh, digital and like having been kicked in the face a bunch of times, you kind of already know what to expect. So you're going from like one hostile environment 
to another, you know, it'd be like going to prison and then going to a halfway house. Like, you know, if your average person went directly to a halfway house, it'd be like, wow, this really sucks. There's some psychos that live here, but like going to prison first, you're not going to think that, you know, it's going to be a lot calmer than what it was. Where So like going from one um, hostile environment to another, it's kind of natural. It's just like that different environment has different variables. So you adapt to them, you know, it's like, like anything else. So like, you know, I always like to say one of the, one of the best things to do um, is to know who you are. So like, you know, whether that's like going to 16 personalities.com and taking a personality test and like seeing who you are and like, it'll like you go there, you read the results and it freaks you out. Cause they're, they're telling you about you. Like I remember going there, taking it. And um, they're talking about how like, like you get lost in thought because like I'm an uh, I'm an INTPA so like I'm logic driven but like I get lost in thought and I'll work and it's like when you play a video game and five hours goes by and you could have swore it was fifteen minutes mm-hmm. and like it's like that with me when I'm when I'm working so oh. it's absolutely insane but um getting back to it like learning who you are whether it's your personality type or learning who you are as far as adaptability. And I think as far as adaptability goes, like some of the best people, my opinion that are in cybersecurity um, or IT or any of these kind of fields with, with this stuff um, is those people who are highly adaptable. Like, I don't care if you have a college degree, I don't care if you got a Cisco cert or, you know, your CSEN, whatever, like, you know, at the end of the day, none of that matters. It's it's about how adaptable you are. Um, And like, they have a test called the uh, AQ test. It's adversity quotient. And it ranges from um, like zero to 200 or something like that. And like, you could take that and you can see literally where you measure on a level of adaptability as a human being. And for me, I think the, the coolest thing about that test is that like, I think adaptability is right there, you know, connected hand in hand um, with survivability. Right. Like if if I stick you in a new environment and you can't survive, that means you're limited to one environment and you can never leave it. It's like, you know, I can only be in Windows and I can't ever use any other OS like it's just it's not going to be good for you. But if like, you know, you can be on like BSD and then hop on Ubuntu and then, you know, transfer over to Windows, and then you're on a Mac like you you have this fluidity that, you know, a lot of people don't have and it makes it a lot easier to kind of operate um and i think that's that's key to survival and really thriving is the ability to go into any environment and not only survive but thrive in that environment and that's i think that's one of the reasons why i was as successful as i was is because that ability to kind of become a chameleon and be able to make it in any place that i go to I know like I that probably way overkill for the for the question you asked. Um I definitely tend to go off on tangents. Um no no again, I, <laughs> I, I think it's awesome. I think it's awesome. So something I'm pretty interested in hearing about as well is like your view on keeping track on multiple identities. How mm-hmm. how was your approach on that? Did you have like 10 or X amount of multiple online identities that you continuously yeah maintain um, so to say yeah yeah i don't i don't even know how many it was um 
I know that like if you if you look at that talk at DEFCON from the slides that I have, I know that I have two different slides um, and I think the pictures are different. I could be wrong. Don't call me on that. Um, but they list, you know, some of the identities that I had. And, you know, there's a lot. Uh, so, yeah, definitely. And And what's crazy about that is, you know, like for your listeners that that don't don't really know too much about PGP, I'm not going to you know get into a whole tutorial, but like with PGP, you basically have a public key and a private key. And like I can send you my public key. You can type something and then use my public key to encrypt that message and send it to me and then I can decrypt it. Um, and but another thing that I can do is I can write a message. And I can do what's called signing that message. So I can say, hi, this is Sam. And then I can sign that message with my private PGP key, which no one else has. And when you have my public key, you can look at that message. You can, you know, put it into, um, uh, you know, a program and you can validate that it was my private key that was used to sign that message. So it, it lets you know that, you know, I'm, I'm the original owner of that key. I'm the one who has access to that private key. And I assigned, it doesn't guarantee you that you're talking to me, you know, um, cause if I got raided or something like that, it could be, you know, a federal agent who has it. Um, but it gives you at least some kind of assurance. So if you're on a different site and someone's like, Oh, Hey, it's two happy times too. We're doing fed time. It's like, yeah, like, all right, send us a signed message and prove it. And like that person has my public key, they can validate um, that much. So with that, what's really crazy about the dark net, when you get into it and you really get into like the subculture, it gets to a point where like things like that, like different identities, typically you would think you use them independently, right? Like, you know, you might have a vendor identity and a buyer identity and that's true. Um, but you also have a history of identities that you can use. So like if you created a dark net site that was like, you know, I don't know, ABC market. Um, I come and I'm like, Hey, I'd like to work for you. Um, you know, in a, in a PM as, as like, you know, you're the, you're the dark net market admin. I'm saying, Hey man, I'd like to work for you. Um, here's my resume. And now my resume is, is me saying, you know, hi, this is too happy times, but I've signed it in you know different p i've signed it and dated it inside of four or five different messages and each message is signed with a different pgp key for a different market admin so what that does is it lets you know all right this guy and you can verify it this guy has worked on three four five ten twenty darknet markets and this is his resume. And like, that's how a resume looks like on the darknet. So like to answer your question, like you do hold on to them. I think my favorite way to do it was with KeyPass X um, because it's, at least you have some encryption and you know, it's all local. So it's like, like my favorite password manager now is Bitwarden by far. But um, back then uh, I was KeyPass X and that was because it was all, you know, it's all local. Why do you prefer uh, Bitwarden now? Um, because it's fluid. So like I can be, I can go from like my my uh, PC to my mobile and have all my creds. Okay. 
Yeah, because it's like it's like you know it's in the cloud. So like no matter what device I on, I'm on or no matter where I am, I can always get access to my credentials. Oh, which okay. I mean, obviously, like you don't want to. You know, I wouldn't do that as a darknet vendor. You know, that's that that would be really stupid opsec to do. No matter how much you think the the company is credible, like it's just something you don't do. So like I would much rather prefer like KeePass X where I can keep it on a local flash drive local or something. And, yeah, yep. don't yep. let it sync to some random provider. Yeah, so like you know, you might have it on a flash drive. So like when you boot up Tails, you can throw it in there, or like I'm I had it on a flash drive and then on like an SD card, and then you take uh-huh. the SD, yeah, you take the SD card, you have a copy of it, so you have a backup. You take that SD card and you take a flathead screwdriver, and with the flathead screwdriver, you go over and you create what's called a slip, and a slip is when you go over to a door hinge, you unscrew the screws. You lift up like one side of the hinge um, okay. where it connects. And then you take that flathead screwdriver and you whack it a couple times and it indents the wood good enough where you can stick in that SD card. You stick in the SD card and then you put the hinge back, put the screws back. And now you have a safe and like no one's going to rob your house and look in your door hinges. Oh, shit. I never heard you of it before. Yeah. So it's called the slip. Um, and it's the something, slip. you know, as um as in. um security right we have that that kind of a scale where on far on the far right side we have security and on the far left side we have convenience like it might be super convenient for you to keep your passwords in a text file and to put all your passwords on you know sticky pads on your monitor and that's like super convenient for you but like you know it's really unsecure right like um it's horrible security um and then on the other hand you know, you have the other extreme and it's like, you know, I'm going to take this flash drive, I'm going to encrypt it and then I'm going to encase it in concrete and, you know, bury it 50 feet in the ground. It's like, you know, getting to that is going to be ridiculous. It's super secure, but like, it's just, it's a ridiculous solution that's way overkill. So trying to find that balance between security and convenience um, is really at the end of the day, what it's all about. And kind of the nice thing about the slip is that you know it kind of gives you the best of both worlds it's relatively accessible um and it's very easy to make anyone with a door can make one um and it, it only takes a couple of seconds you need a screwdriver and something heavy to pound it with you know that's awesome and i mean nowadays you can get a you know you can get a, a sd card that's a terabyte so I mean, you could you could back up a lot of stuff you know um so having those two options where it's like you know if you get raided you can you can pull out that that flash drive and, and, you know, beat it with a hammer or, you know, hit it with a blowtorch or throw it in the microwave or whatever it is you, you know, your, your policy is for data destruction. You can do that. You know, they might raid you. And then like, you know, at the end of the day, if you chose to go back to that, you can, you have your backups and, you know, if they, if they end up raiding you again, you'd sue them for harassment. <laughs> All those kind of things. Like when I created my big thing was when I created my OPSEC and when I looked at, you know, how I wanted to structure everything, I said, I want to set it up where like, it's impossible to be a hundred percent secure. Right. Like that's, that's a logical yeah. fallacy. You know, no one's, you know, anyone ever tells you, Oh, guaranteed you're not going to get hacked. Like, like they're, they're a moron. Um, so, like with that said i wanted to be like you know if i do get busted 
then what's my out? Like, how do I set it up where, like, even if they raid me and they catch me red-handed, I can still get out? How can I do that? And, like, Mm -hmm. my solution was, well, make it so they have to break the law. Because if they have to break the law in order to catch me, you know, you can get those charges dismissed. And with the OPSEC that I set up as a darknet vendor, that was exactly what happened. I set it up to a point where they had to break the law in order to catch me. Um, that was, you know, basically when you ship through USPS, you're shipping through the federal government and the federal government requires a warrant to open your package like FedEx, UPS, DHL. They don't. They're private companies. They can open your shit, look at it. Nothing you can do about it. But, uh, you know, having the federal government ship it, they can't. And they have to satisfy certain requirements, you know, as far as uh, having reasonable suspicion and probable cause in order to even apply for a federal search warrant for your package. And like, if you understand how they define those things and how they can ascertain those abilities of, you know, being able to say this, this package is, you know, there's reasonable suspicion that this package is, you know, there's something illegal in it or like, being able to build on that to a point where they have probable cause. So you want to migrate can... away from all uncertainties and all red flags. Right. Um, so like by understanding what they define and how they define and how they figure those things out, you know, you can engineer a plan where they never do because you know what they're looking for. You know, like if I know a network admin, all he does is, you know, maybe only thing he does is watch Wireshark. Right. Like he sits there all day and he just stares at Wireshark all day. Like running Nmap would probably be stupid. You know, it's going to be a flag for him. So he'd find a different way. Maybe I drop a bunch of USB drives in the parking lot, you know, or, you know, something along those lines. (laughs) Um, But like I'm going to circumvent for everyone. Right. Yeah. Like whatever it is that, that he's looking for, like I'm going to go and try to circumvent that. So in doing that, like it worked. And the United States Postal Inspector, you know, he opened this package and he opened it illegally. He never warned to do it. And he opened it and he found drugs. And then when they, they're like, oh, we found drugs. And then they used that package to apply for a federal search warrant for my home. Um, Why so, did he open the, the package? Um, so I had a the security policy that I had in place um, for my cousin who shipped, like her job was to ship packages. Um, and in return, she got commission on whatever the uh, whatever the ratio was for profit. So like, you know, if, if there was a, if I was selling an ounce of Coke in a, you know, and that was, that's what was in the box. She got a percentage of the profit on that ounce of Coke. She also got a standard fee per box. Um, and then like, you know, all of, um, all of her expenses were, were taken care of. Uh, so like she didn't, she didn't have to pay anything for rent. She didn't have to pay. She had like none of her bills or gas Carpenter, all that stuff. Your uh, right hand, so to say. Right, absolutely, yeah. So, um, like all those things were were taken care of, um, and in exchange, all her only responsibility was shipping packages. Like I coordinated the orders. I all like all that stuff. I talked to the customers. I, you know, made the listings. I did all of that, that stuff. Uh, packaged the packages all that stuff, shipments, reorders, all that. And then she shipped them out. And what ended up happening, again, going back to our our um, scale there with complacency, you know, complacency on one side, security on the other, she moved from the security side 
to the complacency side, how I had it set up was three packages would go out at every post office and no more because the return addresses were for a given town or city. So like you could look at three boxes and they would say town A, right? On the return address. And then the next three packages would be town B, town C. So it's like these, this is the order. You just how drive did you, to these towns. Uh, how did you manage the return addresses? Yeah, so with the so one of the flags USPS um in general looks for is you know fake addresses, whether whether it's shipping to a fake address or a fake return address. So like all those things are flags. And you know, if people are like, oh well, they deliver a bunch of packages, how would they know? I suggest like that individual goes on to usps.com and signs up for informed delivery. And what you'll see is before your mail comes every day, they'll email you pictures of your mail. Like they know what you're getting, you know, and there's, they Mm -hmm. document what you're getting, you know? So um, using a fake return or two address is foolish. Uh, These people deliver your mail every day. They know who you are. So like Mm -hmm. if I get stuff every day and you know, it's under Sam Ben and then, all of a sudden I order some drugs in the dark net and it's like, you know, I don't know, John's son. Like they're going to be like, who the hell is John's son? You know, like, like there's no John's son that lives here. So it's like, it's not something that might cause them. To, they, they still have, don't have the authority to open the box in that case, but you don't want to draw any attention whatsoever. And that's something that can do that. So, you know, it's a red flag. And like, you know, that, postal worker you know not all postal workers are honest you might steal your package you know um so it's that kind of stuff so like for me i had to i had to find a way to have legitimate return addresses that wouldn't go back to like the guy who was working a construction job or the accountant or like any of these citizens any of these people who were working honest nine to fives just trying to make it um and like, I'm no different. I was, you know, just trying to live, you know, um, mm-hmm. like the job I'm doing is illegal, but that's like, that's what it is. We're all just trying to survive. We're trying to make it to the end of the day, trying to provide for our family. So like, I didn't want to screw someone over in me trying to do my job and put them in a, in a bad situation where now they have to, you know, now they're going to have to deal with feds coming to their house. Like, you know, Where's the coke at? Like, you know, or, or something like that. So I wanted to like find a list of people who I, I thought were deserving of being screwed over. Um, and it took me a while because that's like a really that's kind of a big challenge. Like find a list of people who you think are scumbags and you don't mind if you <laughs> screw them over. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there has to be someone in every town that there's a post office in. Um, and like you know, for me, I ended up, my solution was in the sex offender registry. <laughs> and that worked out great for me, you know, because I was like, <laughs> you know, I'm going to go in and, you know, the worst ones, the these level three sex offenders, those are the guys I'm going to go for first. If there's one sex offender in the town and, you know, he's like a, like a level, like the, the least level, like, dude, sorry, you're getting hit, you know, like I'm still going to use your stuff, you know, and if, like, if I ever ran, I never ran across one, but like if I had ever had a town that had no sex offenders in it, I just wouldn't have shipped from it, you know, because I'm not, you know, put someone who's just trying to make it, you know, through mm-hmm. that drudgery, you know, of having to deal with the feds. Because at the end of the day, like if that average person is surveilled, 
there's a great Harvard study that says your average person, like not criminal, like they follow all the laws, like your average person commits one to three felonies a day. One three felonies a day. Yeah. Yeah. And that's because so if you think about it like this, at the end of the day, um, a lawyer, right, yeah. goes to law school for like what seven years, and you know, they by the end of it, they specialize in something. So maybe they specialize in criminal justice, they specialize in, you know, intellectual property rights, or they specialize in corporate law, or they specialize in international law, or they special, you know, they specialize in all these different selective fields within law. So like they study for seven years and after seven years of study, they specialize in one section of law. Now, like you look at even something, you know, like US tax code, I could build a small house with you know the amount of books that they have that you know that just fills the tomes and tomes of of you know information on on just tax law alone. So for your average person who hasn't even spent seven years studying law, you know, never mind just studied law on this like you're never going to know all the laws that exist. So you can never not break those laws. So yeah, yeah. essentially if the feds That's want you, point. all they have to do is watch you for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing, even if they watch you and you don't commit a crime, they can assign a crime to you. So <laughs> there was a lady who I read a case on and her boyfriend sold drugs. Now she didn't know he sold drugs. They had met, they were going out for a little bit. And uh, like, he went to take a shower and the phone rang and he like, you know, he yelled out from the shower. Hey babe, can you answer that? She's like, Oh yeah, sure. So she, you know, she picks it up and whatever the names are like, you know, she picks up the name and it's like, Oh, hi, is, you know, Matt there. And then she's like, Oh no, he's taking a shower. And uh, you know, the, the dude on the other one was, Oh, tell him John called, you know, whatever the guy's name was. Uh, she's like, oh, okay. So like she hangs up and she, you know, she tells her boyfriend, Oh, like John called. And he's like, oh, okay. So like, Years later, this guy gets busted and like they end up snatching up everybody, including the guy that called. And the guy that called was like, oh, like I called and like his girlfriend answered. So they, you know, they figured out who the girlfriend was. And then they went and they questioned her like, oh, like, do you know this guy? She's like, yeah, I went out with him. They're like, okay. And they ended up, so they ended up arresting her and they gave her a conspiracy charge because she answered the phone and told her boyfriend that someone called she was compliant in a criminal conspiracy um and they sentenced her to 10 years that so the federal government has a 99% conviction rate if like like if if i'm a boxer and i have a 99% you know win they have ratio, a 99% conviction rate yep yeah it used to be 97 but it's went up um Jesus you know Christ. Like that, it's basically like when you go to court with the feds, it's like sitting down to play chess with someone and they're like, Hey, I just want to let you know, all my, all my pawns are Queens. You know, like if you you got a problem with that, like, well, too bad. Yeah. Cause if you have a problem with that, you know, you could just, you know, you just admit your guilt now and, and do whatever time I want to give you. But like, you know, you, you have people that go into it. Like when I went into it, I had a 10 count indictment. So going into it, I look up each charge, you know, whether it was money mm-hmm. laundering, possession with intent or conspiracy. I look up each charge and I see each charge carries a, 
a maximum of a 20 year sentence. And like, in order to get that maximum, like you have to be like a career criminal and just like, you have to be, you know, you have to have like really done some crazy shit and like repeatedly been arrested, you know, but I didn't Mm -hmm. know that I had never dealt with the feds. So I'm like, okay, 20, my worst case scenario, right? 20 years, 10 years, you know, I got 10 charges at 20, 20 years a piece. It's 200 years in prison. So, you know, it's a death sentence, you know? So like, you know, your options are like, tell on someone or, you know, take that hit, you know? Um, And for me, I like telling on someone for me was never an option. Like, it's just, it's not who I am. It's not how I'm built. It's not something that, you know, I could do like I, what I did is what I did and being a man, like, you know, I accept responsibility for what I did. I think that's for me, that's the right way to, to handle it. Um, And that's what I did. So like, but looking at like numbers like that, when you're thinking 200 years um, and then you go in and they're like, Hey, listen, uh, we'll give you a maximum of 108 months, which is nine years, like nine years in prison. If I told you, hey, man, you you good to do nine years in prison right now? You're like, hell no. Hell no. I don't want to go to federal prison for, for basically 10 years, dude. That's a wicked long time. That's crazy. But like when you've been sitting there stewing for a year and a half, two years, mm-hmm. five years, you know, cont- waiting for this bullet to come. 10 years is not that long. Um, and that's, that's one of, you know, one of the tactics that they use. Um, so anyways, how it worked out in my case was um, I had what was called a Frank's hearing and a Frank's hearing is really, really difficult to get, but a Frank's hearing is when you can prove law enforcement broke the law in order to catch you. Now it's really hard to get because you're not an investigative agency. <laughs> like <laughs> you don't, you know, as hackers, we have the ability to do OSINT, stuff like that, right? But like exactly. doing, um, you know, doing full-on investigations is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. So like a lot of people, you know, your average person, they it's not something that you really, they have the availability to do. Um, it's either going to take a lot of intelligence and resources uh, or it's going to take a lot of money. Um, and that's kind of the thing between the two. But because of how I structured my business model i had that baked into there um so we had the united states postal inspector you know signing off on opening these packages and then you know using it to apply for a search warrant so everything that happened after that all the drugs they found all that kind of stuff we could get tossed out we had to go to this frank's hearing and basically every charge all my my 10 count indictment was dead because they screwed up going into it they violated the law in order to catch me which was the design of my opsec <laughs> um so i was like oh this is fucking beautiful man because oh, sorry sorry um but i was like you know this is beautiful um because it it it's working out exactly how i planned it um the plan is so, playing out that's <laughs> <laughs> so i was like you know this is great and this is i'm like you know this is why we set up you know security systems and have contingency plans and incident response. And, you know, it's for these things. Obviously those things are typically made in totally different environments, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yes, regardless that they're, they're, that's what they're there for. So uh, we, my lawyer talked to the United States attorney and United States attorney said, Hey, listen, like, I really don't want to go to this Frank's hearing tomorrow, you know? 
And, um, you know, I'm thinking, I'm like, I bet you don't, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, you're going to get owned dude. Like, you know, um, so he's like, I really don't want to go to this Frank's hearing, you know, tomorrow. Um, he was like, listen, like I'll offer you a maximum of 108 months. And, you know, at that point I'm like, man, like screw this guy. You know what I mean? Like, like we're about to own you, you know, um, like we've been gone so far. Yeah, why why would I possibly sign a plea agreement and willingly take, you know, a decade? Mm-hmm. Um and uh like I so I asked my lawyer this and she was like, Well, he said he was like, Listen, like, you know, you'll get all the counts dismissed, but you won't get the initial count, the first count of conspiracy dismissed. And so like it's just me and my cousin, and when we got raided, an agreement I made before we got raided was if we get raided. I'll tell the feds like I'm a dark net vendor and all the drugs in the house are mine. I'll accept responsibility because by doing that, it limits who it's going to affect. It's damage control. So like I'm already, obviously the feds are raiding, right? We already got a severe security issue to, be, to begin with and mm-hmm. I'm in charge of security. So if I screwed up, I'm the one who takes the hit. So, you know, that was our agreement. So when the feds came in, I was like, listen, I'm a dark net vendor all the drugs that are in the safe are mine. And they're like, Oh, what the hell? Um, like really, really blew their minds. <laughs> so, so the feds come and knocking and they don't know that you're a darknet dealer. They're just. No, they had, that... so they had, they had suspicions of it. Um, because okay. they had been, they had been, so after they illegally opened the package, they had been trailing my cousin following her. Mm. Um, and, when they came to the house, they knew the house. They, so they knew where I lived and all that stuff. And that's why, like, if you look at um, in the DEFCON talk where I show, like, the Department of Homeland Security uh, document, um, it says, like, their investigation. They're like, oh, we asked about Sam Ben at the local post office. And they said that, you know, Sam Ben, um, he works with computers. He owns a computer company. So that's what they thought I did. You know, um, mm-hmm. originally they thought that my cousin was the dark net vendor. Mm-hmm. because my opsec was so tight that my like none of my stuff was out there none of her stuff was out there so our our opsec policy was we ship three packages from each post office we don't return to that post office for six months that way mm-hmm. if we ship out post uh we ship out packages from post office a and like you know the the you know postal inspector tells the feds feds come there to surveil it right we won't be back for six months the feds aren't going to sit around for six months waiting for us to come back. So we would, you know, we'd spiral out and we, we would just Mm -hmm. hit these random post offices to move packages, you know, out. Um, Mm -hmm. And she would, she would do three packages each post office and she would know how many to do and where to do them because the, that information was on the return label on the package. Like you can't screw it up. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Um, so what she would end up doing is she got complacent and she would go into a post office with 12 packages. Now with those 12 packages, every three, you know, three packages have one address, three packages have another. So she's walking in there with three, four different return addresses. Oh, that's a red flag there. Yeah. <laughs> right. Now what's funny is that's not enough for a probable cause. Uh-huh. It's reasonable suspicion. But he didn't have, that's why I say like, he didn't have the ability to have reasonable suspicion, which is why he didn't apply for the search warrant. 
That's why he just opened it up anyways. You see what I'm saying now? Oh, okay. Now I get it. Yeah. So, but because he did that, he screwed himself over because now everything they found after that and all my statements are now out the window. My like my saying, I'm a dark net vendor. You know, it was me, it was only me. Um, that's out. Everything they found is out, which was my plan. So this part, this next that's part just wasn't such part. a microphone drop right there. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing that wasn't part of my plan though. And this is where he dropped the mic. Yeah. Is he said, listen, I don't want to go to this, this Frank's hearing. And I was like, yeah, I'm like laughing, you know? Um, and um, he's like, I have a plea deal to offer you. It's 108 months. So he said, I talked to my lawyer. I'm like, screw this guy. Like, I can't wait to go to this, this year. I'm going to be smiling the whole time, you know? And she was like, listen, um, did you read your PSR? So when you catch a federal case, they have this thing called the PSR and the PSR is a, Basically, it's your life story. Um, like if you had pneumonia as a kid, that'll probably be in there. Um, any prior cases you had, your like family history, uh, like any abuse, neglect, injuries, all that kind of stuff is documented in the PSR. And they use your entire life to decide your sentence, in part to decide your sentence. Also, there's your charges and all that stuff. But um, so that this is how they this is how they make this decision is with a PSR. So she was like, oh, did you like read your PSR? And I was like, yeah, I skimmed through it, but it's, it's my life, you know, like mm -hmm. it's my, you know, any charge, like my, my possession charges that I caught, like, you know, all this other stuff, like, you know, I know what's in it. Like I skimmed through it, but it's like, it's everything that's happened in my life. Like, why do I need to read about myself? And um, she's like, oh, like, did you get, did you read page 15? And I was like, I don't, I don't think so. And she's like, yeah, you might want to go read your PSR then. Um, that's nitty. I didn't know how serious that document was. Um, so I went back <clears throat> and I read it. Now, prior to me telling you what I saw on it, what happened was after I got indicted, the United States attorney contacted me and through my lawyer and basically said, hey, listen, we'd like you to come in and give us a proffer. So my lawyer told me this and I was like, I was like, what's a proffer? Like, I'd never heard of that. And she's like, well, you know, a proffer is like you, me and you go to the United States attorney and like you sit down with them and you tell them, you know, who you did business to uh, with, like what their names are, um, you know, where you ship to. Uh, what you know about who, like if you have account numbers of people or like whatever you know about, you know, your illegal business and anyone that was involved in it, you tell them all that. And I was like, man, you know, that kind of sounds like snitching to me. You know, and she was like, she was like, we don't call it that. We don't call it that. I was like, listen, <laughs> lady, I worked with cartels. They, they would, you know, like I got, <laughs> I got three kids, like my whole family. Are, are you nuts? <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> like I'm good. I'll go to prison for 200 years. At least I know, you know, they're not gonna they're gonna murder my kids. You know, like yeah, I'm, I'm set. And not only that, like I did what I did, so I'll eat that. Um, mm -hmm. So, anyway, so she's like going back, you know, fast forward. She's like, go read your PSR. So I'm like, all right. So I go through, get to page 15, and on page 15, my cousin's name is Geneva. So I get to page 15, and it says Geneva Benz Proffer. And okay. I was like, oh, you. You bitch. <laughs> because the oh. whole time that I was under indictment, she had been living with me. 
So like the feds took all our money. They took everything. So like I had to go out, like get a, a legit nine to five, obviously, and, and work. And like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm doing that. And, you know, she's just doing whatever she wants. Like she's still not contributing. She's not paying rent. She's not moving out. But the whole time she was informing on me. So Whoa. like it was <clears throat> I had agreed to take the hit for everything before mm-hmm. we got raided. We got raided. I fulfilled my end of the bargain. You know, I admitted yeah. to everything so they wouldn't mess with her. And then, you know, they ended up talking to her at some point, And obviously she talked to them back. And by her talking to them, she's openly admitting conspiracy. And when you, you know, admit that you conspired to do something with another person, that person's automatically on the hook for conspiracy. <laughs> so I could be all nine of you know the charges except for that one conspiracy count because she had already snitched on me. Now, now, what he had said was, I'll offer you 108 months. You sign, you know, you sign for 108 months. I don't have to go to this Frank's hearing. And you, I, you know, you'll be guaranteed that you don't get more than 108 months. Um, or okay. you, you don't sign it. You, you know, fight it. We go to this Frank's hearing, you get some charges dismissed. And, um, you know, you're still going to get charged with conspiracy, which I can prove because I have documentation and witness statements from her um, and corroboration from her. And, you know, I will go for a a mandatory minimum of 10 years, which means there's no good time. There's no none of that. There's no, you know, in feds, there's no parole anyway. Um, But like there's no good time, no none of that on a 10 year mandatory sentence like you're doing that whole 10. So, um. I was put, you know, that was when he dropped the mic. I was like, all right, yeah, like, screw him out. I'll sign, you know. Um, and I ended up signing for it. And my judge, when he reviewed the um, when he reviewed the case, uh, he ended up reviewing it. And uh, he ended up giving me 60 months um, in prison, which is five years, instead of what the prosecutor was trying to get, which was nine. And how long did you end up uh, serving? So I had went in and I got like a... Uh, the first thing I started doing when I got there was I realized, you know, I got convicted with words, right? Like, you know, a bunch of words built into something like, you know, for a website is, is, you know, code. And when it executes correctly, it makes something, you know, potentially worth a lot, right? Like, you know, Zuckerberg building his website turns into Facebook. It's worth billions. Right. Um, So you have this inherent power in words, you know, as like V would say from V from data. Um, um, it is very hackerish thing to point out, but, um, you know, there's, there's a power with words and like seeing like how I got convicted through, you know, these words like legalese, you know, where like they're using, you know, they're using Black's Law Dictionary, not like mm-hmm. the Oxford Dictionary. So it's a, you know, a totally different language and how they're doing that. Like I saw an inherent power in getting to know and understand the law. Um, so I started studying it and I became a paralegal while I was there. Um, but like I got, I got five years. So getting five years federally, you have to do 85% of your time. So it would have been like four and a half, four and a half years that I would have to do, um, on that. But like I went in and I studied, um, the law and like, I got to a point where after studying it for so long, I was like, you know what, like, I'm good. I'm just going to do my sentence, you know, and, and whatever. And uh, my wife was like, screw that. Like, file a motion, like fight for your freedom. Like you can't just give up. So, you know, um, she encouraged me to fight for my freedom and I ended up doing just that. I filed a, 
a 3582 motion, which is a compassionate release motion. And basically I said, you know, um, I'm obese. I have high blood pressure. I'm a former, you know, cigarette smoker. Um, I had asthma. Um, so I'm at risk of catching and dying from COVID according to the CDC. Um, so mm-hmm. you know, I told my judge, like you gave me five years, you didn't give me a death sentence, you know? Um, and the motion that I wrote was 200 pages. Now, when you're in like federal prison, there's so much bad stuff that happens that you get to a point where you just, you don't believe anything good will happen and it's a safe way to live. Um, so like in writing this motion, I didn't expect to be free. I expected I'd file it. And, you know, I knew that the United States attorney would have to read whatever I wrote and he'd have to write back to it. So I wrote, you know, this 200 page motion one to piss him off because it's, it's, 200 pages, right? Like <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting in prison. I don't have anything else to do. He's got a ton of stuff to do. So, you know, let me write this massively long motion that he has to read his, you know, but on top of that, um, there was a lot of precedent for me getting released. Um, like I said, like it wasn't a death sentence. Uh, it was a five year sentence. So I fought and I fought very hard and um, the United States attorney waited four months before responding to me. And when he responded, the majority of what he said was what they call background and background is basically, you know, Sam Bent did this. He was sentenced on this day. He's done this much. Time. It's just what's happened in the case. So he spent like 15, 16 pages talking about what's already happened. And then he spent one page saying why I shouldn't be released. And like one of those things was cause like I had refused the COVID vaccine and like, you know, I responded back and I was like, you know, I have a, I have an inherent right to, have informed consent for anything medical related. So that means that I have the ability and I have the right to learn about a medical treatment or vaccine before I agree to take it. You can't forcibly vaccinate me, um, even though I'm in prison. And my like, there was a paper that documented that I had never gotten the vaccine because the BOP came through one day and like, everyone's getting the vaccine or sign this paper and refuse it. And like, you know, if I sign that paper, my argument to the court wouldn't have been as good because at that point I would have been vaccinated. Now, you know, since then, a lot of data has come out about how, you know, the vaccine doesn't even doesn't prevent transmission. And, you know, it's so that's but that's a whole nother topic. I'm not going to get into that. But um, so going back to that, uh, I didn't want to I didn't want to take it because I didn't want to give them any ammunition to be able to use against me. So the ammunition that he did use was like, oh, look, you refused. Here's the paper. And uh, like my judge, when my judge sentenced me, he was like, oh, you're a very high, you're a highly intelligent, you know, person. I've, I've never seen a crime like this, very unique. And uh, he was like, you know, I can't give you a probationary sentence. Um, and a probationary sentence is like, you know, you don't go to prison, you go to probation. Um, and he's like, I can't give you a probationary sentence because no one's asked for that. So like when I got my transcripts and I read that, I was like, I could have, I could have been on probation uh, instead, but like, I mean, I actually couldn't have because of my sentencing points. So I didn't really get what he was saying there, but, um, you know, he, like he read it and, um, he said, you know, based on your three, five, five, three, a factors, which is basically legal jargon for who you are, right. Are you a sociopath? Do you, are you a repeat offender? Are you like, you know, are you a drug addict or, you know, are you, you know, in my case, it was just like a guy who was trying to get his, you know, his, his family's kids into a, 
a better position, you know? So based, it wasn't like I was, I was, wasn't selling drugs. So I could buy a Lexus, you know, um, I was doing it to try to get a nice place to live for my, my children. And like that matters federally. Um, so like, you know, taking that into account, it was another reason why he ended up granting my motion. Um, and it was, it was really amazing to, you know, beat the United States attorney. Um, you know, like this guy is, you know, obviously a, a very top lawyer. You know what I mean? Um, and like, I smashed him legally, <laughs> of course. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think that was, that was really awesome. It was like, but it was like a brute force attack, right? Like a 200 page motion. I mean, a, to give you like a kind of a comparison, a lot of compassionate release motions are like three, maybe 15 pages, you know? Mine was two hundred. Mm -hmm. Oh shit! So it was it was a it was a brute force attack and like, um, yeah, he just he really, the United States Attorney really does not like me <laughs> because of that. I like that mentality. That's a bit of the hacker mentality we want. To right. So yeah, I mean, I go I go from one one like hostile environment, you know, mm -hmm. the dark net to prison is another again hostile environment each one has its own unique rules its own mm -hmm. set of security its own set of do's and don'ts you know um and like and then you have the law and that's a whole nother again whole nother thing but it's like you know you learn how you, know, you learn html then you move into css and then you know maybe you move into you know something else like sql or whatever um and all these different things kind of have their own you know, their own syntax, their own ways of doing things and proper procedures and, you know, all these different things and taking all that into account is kind of, you know, at the end of the day, what I, I try to do. And again, the going back to the adaptability we were talking about, you know, mm -hmm. you can survive building your own company. Can you survive, you know, being a darknet vendor? Can you survive, you know, being in federal prison Can you survive, you know, all these different things were just really interesting challenges. You know, a lot of people, you know, maybe like someone looking for a challenge, I'm going to go try to climb a mountain, you know, like do something like that. Um, mm -hmm. As uh, I said, different worldviews and, you know, needs at the time. So absolutely push in different directions. But how did it go from, so you go from just selling to being more active in these, uh, in these sites? Taking no, it's the opposite. Oh, it was the opposite. So you yeah, started so, more as a moderator and no, 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 no. So um so I started. Yeah, so so when I went on there, no one knows you, right? Like you're just a screen name. Um mm -hmm. so there is no credibility, there's no nothing. Like you're just a random user. No one knows you, no one cares about you. A regular person. So like the question was like, how do I establish myself in a place where we're all anonymous? If I'm not ready to be a, a vendor yet. And I'm not a darknet buyer. How do I come into this anonymous place and establish credibility? And for me, it was do what I've always done. And that's try to help people out, teach people about security, teach people about OPSEC, teach people about IT and best practices, and try to teach them how to keep themselves secure. Now, I had been used to doing it on a residential le level, you know, with individuals, you know, locking down their routers, you know, updating firmware on their routers, like, you know, making sure that, you know, they know to pick good passwords and, you know, all these kind of different things, showing them how to see who's on 
their you know their local area network to make sure that mm-hmm. you know, no one's on their network that shouldn't be. Um, so all those kind of best practices, you know, in, in installing you know next DNS or Kaspersky or whatever it was, um, you know, to to be able to try to keep them safe, you know, preventative those preventative means are a lot better than actually having to respond to an incident. So all that kind of stuff was natural to me. So going into that realm, I was like, all right, well, I'm going to go in and I'm going to be helpful. So that's what I did. I went in and um, my first month on my first dark net forum, um, I made four or 5,000 posts. I want to say it was 5,000, 5,000 posts. And it was insane because it was like, it was like a 60 hour a week job where like, that's what I did. I went and I just responded to everyone that, you know, made a post on that forum. Um, and in a month's time, I went from nobody knowing me to the whole community knowing me. And you, know, you had people who hated me on there, but you had like a lot of people who had respect for me because they like, someone would ask a question and they, they knew they were getting an answer. They knew it was reliable. And like, if you hopped on there and tried to get people outside of the escrow system, you know, like, let's say pounds of cannabis are selling for 1200 random number, like, pounds of cannabis on that dark net market are averaging for like 1200 right and you know you have a scammer who hops on the forums and is like hey man like i got this pound for 600 you know you know dm me and like what they would try to do is try to pull these people off the dark net site with his escrow and into a private sale where there is no escrow so they can screw them because what are you gonna do you know there's nothing you can do um in that case so like someone i saw a message like oh dm me you know, and I'll, we'll talk prices. I'd be like, dude, like, why don't, why don't you make a listing? Why don't you pay the fee and become a vendor, bro? Like, why are you trying to get them off the site and, you know, out of escrow for, you know? And like, so I made a lot of enemies that way. But the people I made enemies with were there to screw people anyway. So I don't, you know, I didn't care if they hated me. But the interesting thing was from kind of like, um, you know, social engineering perspective was kind of seeing like, how people would react. Cause once people kind of know who you are and how you are, you know, they, they kind of react different ways. So there might be a new person who hops on and like that guy's a scammer. So I call him out and everyone knows that I do this cause they've been on the site. And so I call him out and he flips out and say like, he, you know, he cusses at me, swears at me, whatever um, tells me, I don't know what I'm talking about. And I would see the community come to my aid. Cause they knew, cause like a lot of these people I had helped. Um, so it was just crazy, man, like being in this anonymous environment and being there for a month and having, you know, five, 10 people. When I called a scammer out, the scammer tries coming to me, these five, 10 people jump up and they're like, yo, you know, back up, you know, two happy times. He's, you know, he helps people here and, you know, you, who the hell are you, you know, why don't you do what he said and, and go become a dark net vendor and, and, you know, go through escrow. <laughs> so that's isn't, how I started out. It's an interesting then, like sociology part and economical part of it where the market just filters out bad actors. Right. Automatically. Yep. Yep. I mean, you, they definitely, they get scraps from the table. You know, you are, mm-hmm. you're always going to have that noob who, you know, hops on, gets fished or, you know, you know, does that, a private deal because he thinks it's a great deal and you know he just gets scammed he just by someone somehow yeah 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 and that's but again like that's part of that growth we were talking about earlier like once that guy gets screwed over like he's never he's probably never gonna do it again it's like like i walk into this company and 
you know, I have a teddy bear and I have a delivery outfit on and I hand the secretary this teddy bear and I hand her this envelope, you know, inside of an envelope with a, with a note inside of it. And like, I'm like, oh, it's, you know, delivery. And, and I walk out and she like opens it up and it's like, oh, like, you know, when you have the teddy bear plugged into your ethernet port and you go to your secret admirers, Facebook page, the teddy bear dances. And, you know, there's some micro motherboard inside of there with, you know, some malware. And as soon as she plugs it in, like it's, you know, got a reverse listener. <laughs> it's, you know, I'm in your network now, you know, uh, thanks to Meterpreter. And I'm pivoting through the, you know, the LAN with Metasploit, uh, thanks to your secretary. Now, that was part one. Join us in two weeks as we continue this conversation with Sam. Until then, I wish you all the best. And I'll see you in the future.